Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. not just because of the exceptional Rob Thomas joke in Barbie that I am not starting this episode with a Rob Thomas joke, although that is certainly a big reason. It's hot out. I am sitting in my office right now, less than 12 hours before this episode is scheduled to air. I live in upstate New York, a place that is supposed to be somewhat more climate resilient than, say, New York City. And it turns out that really nowhere is quite climate resilient, which, you know, makes sense. We live on a planet, which is an ecosystem. Everything that happens everywhere affects everywhere else. We are all in this together. And I have really struggled with not making this too dark an introduction, but it's hard, right? Climate change is here. I mean, it's been here. But it seems like even the doubters are starting to come on board after the year that we've had, the five years that we've had, the decade that we've had, this entire century so far. It is in many ways no surprise that climate and nature are an integral part of genre fiction. And they kind of have been. This question of what is nature and how do human beings interact with it? How do we fit into it? Are we a part of it? Are we separate from it? Are we somehow magically, mystically both? These questions have powered some of the best genre fiction of all time. I wish that people had paid more attention to the things that were being raised in genre fiction in, say, the 70s and 80s. But that's a whole other issue for a whole other podcast. And frankly, I'm kind of tired of looking back in anger. Oh boy. An Oasis reference too? Woof. I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time, and this year it just felt right. Not least of all because of the absolutely fucking weird summer that we have had weather-wise in upstate New York as well as around the world, etc., etc. It feels important to look both from a science fictional standpoint and from something more fantastical or weirder at nature, at the world around us, the quote-unquote natural world. Isn't that a funny phrase, that it sort of exempts us from the natural world as though we are above it or separate from it in some way? We're going to jump forward into the future a little later in this episode and dive into the oceans too. But first, let us go to a place where you can feel the dirt under your feet. S.L. Coney obtained a master's degree in clinical psychology before abandoning academia to pursue writing. In addition to making up stories, they work to help train and place people in tech careers. They have ties to South Carolina, roots in St. Louis, 
and are still deeply disappointed that their fins never grew in. Their debut novella, Wild Spaces, came out this summer and is a perfect example of the reason why novellas are spectacular. It is the story of a young boy who has been growing up along the coast and wetlands of South Carolina with his parents and his dog, and when his estranged and strange grandfather shows up, the family starts to splinter in ways that the boy doesn't understand and that the grown-ups refuse to explain. It is a beautiful, elegant, frankly perfect novella that I read straight through without taking a single note and went back to reread in order to make notes for this interview. And I had no complaints about doing that at all. This book is so rooted in the natural world. And, well, naturally, that was the place that I wanted to start. And so when we sat down, I asked about the natural world and how the natural world came into this book. So let's start with the father a little bit. The father in character isn't anybody, right? But his profession was very much taken from my own father. My father was a professor of biology at Coastal Carolina University and then went on to become the head of malacology at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History. So when I was young, one thing that we would do that was just a very treasured time for me is we'd go out on these field trips. We would hunt for fossils, and we would look for bivalves and all of this kind of thing. And so when I sat down to write this story, I very much wanted to capture two things. I wanted to capture the way that it felt to be in this place, like atmosphere, all of that. And this was very much like a very particular part of my childhood. I really wanted to tap into my childhood to get to that place. So I used bits and pieces of things that were from my own childhood, kind of like bring in that that memory, that sense memory of being in these places. And I think it worked really well because I think it translated to the page. Yeah, I, um, I moved out of New York City in 2020. And I've been living in the woods and there is something I, I continue to find nature just endlessly fascinating. And I think I always have. But there is that feeling of leaving the city, getting out into the woods and just being like, wow. And I loved how you captured that, that thing. There's sort of a childlike initial experience of the world. I'm learning. I'm experiencing something new. Everything is magical and wonderful. But then you also show this character who still has that wonder at the world as an adult. And I just, I so enjoyed how joyful nature felt at times in this book. You know, there's a lot nature to be wowed by. There's a lot to wonder about, you know, and if you pick up a fossil and you look at a fossil, especially if it's a creature that we don't really have right now, right? And to just kind of wonder about it and to think of these animals actually existing. And it's stuff now that we would probably be horrified to see in some instances, right? And so to have that wonder and to have that joy in, in finding something new and something that has gone and we don't have it anymore, but we have these footprints that are left behind, you know, and that is very much a kind of a theme within the story is what we leave behind or what we don't leave behind. So. Yeah, I really love that question and the ways in which it just makes you think about what was this thing? What could this have been? And, you know, not to be too meta about it, but there's also something about the nature of storytelling that does that too, I think, especially in speculative genres like 
what if? What could this thing be? Let me describe something for you that your mind cannot fully picture, but we could like kind of together get there. And I want to know about bringing the natural and the unnatural world together in this book. Did you always know that this was going to be speculative? No. So this particular story started with an image and the image was something spectacular, not something we would see in the natural world. But it's also grounded in character and in family dynamics. So bringing those two things together and thinking about history and what family history means seemed a very natural place to go for me. But also the blending of the supernatural and the natural, because, you know, the monster is taken from nature. It's taken from creatures that actually exist now. I've just put them together in a really weird way. And the final image is also a very natural image done in a supernatural way. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that, but I want to save it. Yeah. (laughs) The thing that I really keep coming back to on both of my reads of this book is that feeling of like, yes, it's a coming of age. Yes, it's a loss of innocence. But so often in stories like that, I feel like it's telegraphed a little bit. There's there's that like backward lens. It's it's the character who came of age looking back. And it was so remarkable that this this book is so rooted in its own present tense, I think is the way I want to phrase it. It's a really cool feat of writing and economy. And I want to know more about writing from this child's point of view and keeping it really feeling like it is from this child's point of view. Yeah, well, I chose to do the present tense instead of looking back because that was pivotal to what I want the reader to experience, right? I want them to experience this as the boy experiences it. I want them to end up in that same place that the boy ends up having the same questions that the boy has. And if I do that where he's looking back, then I'm answering some things. And I don't want to do that. I want to leave them in this spot. And so coming at it from that tense was really the only way to do that. As far as keeping it In the boy's point of view, one of the things that I wanted to accomplish, I really wanted to track the journey of knowledge and how we gain that knowledge and what we learn and what we don't learn. Because what we don't learn is as important as what we do learn. And so there are holes in the boy's understanding. There are gaps. And really the only way that I could shape those gaps so that the reader is also experiencing them was to really be sure about my beats and make sure that he is realizing and learning appropriately. I went through and went through to make sure that his understanding grew in a way that made sense for him and was always in this headspace that he was not, you know, thinking outside of what he should be thinking about or thinking about something in a way that he shouldn't be thinking about yet. Yeah, it was a very painstaking process, but it was so important to the book, so. I mean, the effort paid off. There's such a visceral feeling of being around the corner, slightly overhearing conversation, snippets of conversation. You don't understand those snippets, or you don't understand the context. You're just picking up on the tone, and you know that it's kind of off. It's it's visceral. And I loved what you said about the things that the boy doesn't learn are as important as the things that he does. And that that thought about maturity and learning and family is so complex and delivered so 
smoothly. And I have a, I have a question to stay on this topic for another minute. And the question is going to come out a little strange, maybe. But does it actually matter the literal things that the parents are saying that the boy is overhearing? Or is it about that tone and that feeling? Like, do you know what the parents are talking about and what the grandfather is talking about? Or was it really just, let me figure out how to make it feel like this? Oh, no. I know the entire backstory of the grandfather. There is a whole society that he comes from. I know the entire story. The mother knows the entire story. Mm -hmm. The father knows a little bit of the story. And the boy doesn't know anything. I mean, I don't think I would have been able to give that feeling and have the conversations on the page if I didn't know that. There was this kind of push and pull about how much do I put on the page? I worked with Richard Thomas and he was reading early drafts and he's like, you got to put more, you got to, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not putting more because that's, that's the point. And then Ellen came back and was like, well, can you give me a little bit more? And it was really interesting because in my mind I had gone, okay, if I have to put more, I will go to this point mm. and this is my stopping point. I can't go any further than here. And that was what she asked for. And I was like, okay, I can do that. But the blanks that are in this story are important. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit more about feel. There's, I found myself on my second pass, like writing a bunch of metaphors and <laughs> just being like, the, the story feels like this. It feels like this. I think my favorite one, because it's also just sort of my favorite liminal natural space to be in, is like watching a storm coming towards you and that feeling of like you see the it's a bright beautiful day and you see the clouds coming and then it starts to get darker and it starts to get grayer and it's not like the storm arrives and it rains there is that like that full transitional space and then also the storm passes and the book it felt like that 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 anticipation that that built and built and built and also the the, the reason that the storm thing really worked for me, not just because there's a truly legendary storm in this book, but that feeling of, of disruption and that feeling of like, we're building towards something. And that the, like, I don't know, feeling, feeling nature doing that and feeling the family doing that at the same time, just this incredible feeling of, of dread and tension and then the release of it, the, the satisfactory, like, oh, it's not, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting ending. It's not unequivocally positive. It's not unequivocally negative. But there, but there is that release. And yeah, I guess it's, it's just, I felt this book right down to my bones. Like, I felt my feet in the dirt in this book. I mean, that is important to me. I enjoy stories like that. I enjoy stories where I can feel like I'm in this place with this character. I love lush settings. I love the way that setting can evoke feeling and mood and tension. And I'm also a very visual person. So as I'm writing, I see it. I feel it. I can feel the tightness of the salt on my mm. skin. I kind of experience it as I write it and I try to get that on the page. I do. I like the way that this book and, and hearing that your dad and the father share some affinities and hearing you talk about memory, the way that this book, even though it is so rooted in the present, like we were talking about, there is a feeling of memory to it. There is a feeling of 
And I guess I just wonder if that's because reading it, like, I'm 35. I'm not 10 or 11. But I remember how I felt at that time. I just wonder if it's possible for us as quote-unquote adults, grown-ups, whatever semi-pejorative term we want to put on it, we can only live in that space through memory, but that also we can step back into that space through memory. Can we, as adults, actually experience what it was like to be young without it being colored by what we know comes next? And particularly in the context of this book... There are these three adults who are looking at the boy being like, something is coming for you. And there's that question, right, of how much of that is certainty. You know, puberty is coming. You're going to start maturing. Things are going to happen to you. And how much of it is that uncertainty, that sense that stranger things or more difficult things are going to happen. And it's scary because we can't control those and neither can you. We all have things universal that we experience as we grow up. Mm -hmm. And anything I think that deals with coming of age is going to resonate with us because it is a very powerful time in our life. And so we have strong memories tied to that. Mm -hmm. So first, there's that piece. As far as like the mother and the father, the father is, I mean, he's totally thinking about puberty, right? right? He's totally thinking about things in the natural world because this is what he knows. So they're all, yes, they're all looking at the boy, but they're all seeing different things. And if we think about the mother, if we think about her as a person who is coming from a past that she has run all the way across the country to get away from, she's trying to start out new. If you have this sort of baggage, this kind of weight in your past, she's probably not going to tell people, right? Even her husband. You know, she may tell him a little bit. We get the understanding that he knows a little bit, but it's not uncommon, especially if you have grown up in a family where there are secrets or there is some sort of shame to perpetuate that. It's kind of what we do in family systems. We perpetuate these same behaviors, even if we don't want to, or even if we don't mean to Mm -hmm. sometimes. And so she is perpetuating this, this traumatic thing that happened in her past. She's perpetuating the secrets of it, even if she's trying not to go down that same path. And it doesn't have to be some big, bad secret. It doesn't have to be that. It can be a small thing that somebody might feel shame about, like shame is incredibly damaging. So it's something that is not just experienced in families where there are abusive situations or this trauma. Any family can have secrets. Thinking about the mother and the grandfather, there's this feeling of the grandfather, as with all, I think, older generations where they're sort of like, what do you mean you're ashamed of this thing about us? What do you mean you had to run away from this? And as retrograde as that can sometimes come across, I can see the grandfather's point of view a little bit in a little bit of a like, this is who you are. This is a part of your blood. And that is a really fascinating dynamic to let one's adult brain rattle around about for a while after finishing this book. Because the boy is just like thrust into it. He just has to deal with it, kind of. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Uh, (laughs) And that's the point, Right. right? Like this situation has come up. He's not getting any explanation. He doesn't understand what's happening. And he's left to try and piece things together himself. And kids are just so much smarter Mm -hmm. than we give them credit for. An offhand comment here, an overheard conversation there, they might not understand what happened, but they do understand that something has happened. And so that is, I mean, that's where he's existing. 
I mean, this feels like the right time to talk about Teach. First of all, what a good, good boy. (laughs) Such a good boy. Teach is so integral to this book and such a wonderful companion to the boy. And I want to ask you about putting a dog in the book, putting a dog in danger in the book, because I certainly have friends. I feel like just about everybody does at this point where, you know, the minute a dog shows up in the book, they're like so concerned for (laughs) for the dog. Teach was the very first character in the book. He was pivotal to that image that started this book. So he was always there. You know, I love dogs. I have dogs. And, you know, as I was, as I I had finished up the first draft of this and was kind of letting it cool down and my dog died and I was heartbroken and just said, you know, I was like, I can't write this. I can't write this book right now. I can't write it. And then, you know, was finally able to come. It's a powerful thing. And I I just, you know, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about the dogs that I grew up with, a mother-daughter pair, both died in about eight months of each other when I was probably about the boy's age. That was my first experience with grief. And it's it's interesting that um, it was it was just like, again, it really like threw me back in time, threw me out of my current corporeal self a little bit in a positive way to watch a kid learning about grief and the natural rhythm of things. And obviously the grief that the boy deals with um, is a little more significant than just the passing of a 14-year-old Airedale. Um, but there's also like the the bond and teaches, teaches like the the platonic ideal of a good dog where it's like, Oh, my dog is so smart. It's like, well, it's probably still just a dog, even though we all believe that our dogs are geniuses. Um, But, like, there's something else going on with Teach that I love not quite knowing everything about. Yeah. No, there there is. There's something else going on with Teach. Well, and I like that the boy doesn't really question it. No. I mean, why should he? Yeah. It just is. This is his best friend, and his best friend just is. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so beautifully uncomplicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that, you know, that's part of why the dog had to come at the very beginning of the book, because he had to still be in this innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even just his name, Teach. You know, he's doing as much, if not more, than the adults in this book to teach the boy how to exist in the world. And I've been trying to think of how to phrase this as a question instead of just, again, being like, oh, my God, I loved it so much. I really enjoyed the way that Teach comes into the story in a way that is not dissimilar from the way the grandfather does. Like, there's a family unit. Something new enters the family unit. We get one that is positive and continues positive. And then we get one that seems like it should be positive, but quickly sours. And I guess it's a craft question, really, like about structure and pacing. The ways in which you start playing these things off of one another and you build this momentum almost without the reader noticing for a little while. There's a fair amount of this book where, you know, quote unquote, nothing's happening. It's people talking, it's experiences. The things that are happening are happening just off to the side a little bit. And then all of a sudden, kaboom, we are in it. Things are moving and you can turn around and sort of look over 
your literary shoulder a little bit to see how you set these things up for us so neatly, but it never felt like you were setting those things up. Tell me about writing that. One, it's just kind of part of the way that I write. I prefer people not to see the mechanism. I prefer to be a little more subtle. I'm a huge fan of subtext. I personally, when I sit down to read a book, I love a book that makes me think. I love a book that lets me dig for deeper meaning. And so that's what I try to incorporate into my own writing. So, you know, it, it, it's about the story, but there are other things that are happening. And there are things that I want people to think about. They are things that I want them to kind of gnaw on a little bit. So I don't just want to hand it to them. And I want my reader to bring some of their own stuff to the story as well, which I think all good art does, right? Whether it's film or if it's book, it allows room for its audience to come in and experience it and to identify with it. We can't change how people are going to interact with a work after it's out there, especially if you are inviting that reader to come in and draw conclusions on their own. That is what they're going to do. And so some people might get mad because they draw one conclusion and some people, maybe they draw another conclusion. I know what happens in my head. I know where it goes in my head. It can be wherever, wherever you live and whatever your experience is. I want to ask you about the last image of the book. There is something so concrete about it while also being maybe the most open to interpretation moment in the whole book. Or not open to interpretation so much as just like, oh my God, so now what? And it, it's, it's sort of a moment where we learn the most about teach. In some ways, we have just come out of learning the most about this world that you have created, like about the boy and his family, but then it's also just this like beautiful, small, grown-up moment. I can't pinpoint the moment, quote-unquote, in the book where it feels like the boy shifts from, from being a boy into something slightly, into being, I don't know, a teenager or whatever. And yet, at the end, there is this, this feeling of, oh, this is different. And ending on that moment, that moment of simplicity and stillness that also invites a lot of subtextual consideration. I want to know about the landing, I guess. You know, I once heard, and I'm paraphrasing, so I hope I'm not paraphrasing badly, but I once heard Stephen Graham Jones speaking about endings, and he said that a good ending is the ending that you don't plan it, you don't plot it, you don't struggle with it, you step off the edge and it's there. Mm. And that's what this ending was for me. I stepped off the edge and it was there. And, you know, throughout the book, there is a change. There is a change in the boy. He is changing mentally as well as physically. We see this progression of him from when he's struggling to try and figure everything out to the point, you know, where he's going, he's talking to the dad. And then there's the scene where they're crabbing. And there's been a real change in the boy at that point. And then there's a series of traumatic events. And that, I mean, that will make you grow up very quickly. <laughs> Dealing with this kind of thing. and. This is a dark book, right? The boy experiences a lot of loss, but it was very important to me that there also be a potential for hope, that there be a moment of stillness that could be a moment of healing. Mm. And I don't think he's quite there yet, but he's starting to come to terms with it, right? He's starting to forgive. He's entering into a different era of his life here. He's living in, in this wild space and he's still telling secrets. Yeah. And you never know. Maybe someone will tell him some back.
Ruthanna Emrys lives in a mysterious manor house on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. with her wife and their large, strange family. She's the author of the Innsmouth Legacy series, which began with Winter Tide. Her stories have appeared in a number of venues, including Strange Horizons, Analog, Tour.com. She makes homemade vanilla, obsesses about game design, gives unsolicited advice, and occasionally attempts to save the world. Which is a pretty good description, that last bit, of her most recent book, The Half-Built Garden. A Half-Built Garden is set in 2083, after a bit of a tipping point when it comes to the climate crisis, but humanity has managed to survive. In fact, they've even started to turn things around a little bit. And then, one warm March night, Judy Wallach-Stevens wakes up to a notification that there are unknown pollutants being dumped into the Chesapeake Bay. She straps on her baby and heads out to look and is greeted by the first alien visitors to Earth. What kicks off is a first contact story unlike any you have ever read. It grapples with biological imperatives. It grapples with capitalism. It grapples with extraterrestrial xenobiology. And more than anything, it grapples with the question of whether or not it is better to give up on the world that we have in pursuit of another one or to try and try and try to save the one that we have. There are so many ideas in this book, but one that stuck out to me, a concept that then in her acknowledgments, Ruthanna calls diaper punk, really made me wonder, well, where did that come from? Where did this book come from? But where did the whole diaper punk thing come from? When a book gets to the point where I know that I'm actually going to write it and finish it, there's at that point like five intersecting ideas that came together to make that happen. It's never just one thing. I want to write about someone who's at my life stage and doing my life stage things was part of it. But I've always wanted to write a first contact. It's one of my favorite subgenres. I wanted to write something that really made concrete the connection between taking care of a baby and creating the world that they're going to live in. Genre fiction tends to assume that there's this divide between family life and caregiving and going out, having adventures, and being part of the world. For me, having kids, it gets really distracting. It takes up a lot of time and you don't have time for a lot of other things, but it also makes you feel even more stake in the future because times that are science fictional speculation to me are stuff that my kids are going to live in. And I also just wanted to see, you know, more diaper changes and nursing while people are in the middle of having adventures, breaking down this idea that if you are parenting, you are not having adventures right now, and that if you're having an adventure, then the parenting is just a barrier to that. And part of it was exploring what is it like to err in the opposite direction of modern American society, where bringing your kid to something is considered just this complete, how could you, how could you have a baby who might cry or need something in this meeting? How could you expose them to danger? And also, I really wanted 
to explore what would a positive post-capitalist, post-nation-state future look like. I was interested in what the messy transition to that looks like, because you see a lot of books where you have some wildly different form of governance, but you never see you know, unless you have the Chicago fire, there's always going to be the older buildings and the older forms still around. And, you know, there are still people who believe in the divine right of kings. And Le Guin is right that what we have now was unimaginable from there, but also it's still there. I mean, speaking of Le Guin, this novel feels very much in the vein of her work. It is a book that grapples deeply with ideas while also functioning on a really good plot story level. And you have always done some of that grappling with ideas, but I feel like Half-Built Garden is different from your earlier novels in that this is more, I guess, hard sci-fi, where those were a little bit more cosmic horror adjacent. And I'm just wondering if you would talk about the work of ideas in your writing. The, the funny thing is that if you put in spaceships and aliens, then it's hard science fiction. And if you put in magic and aliens, then it's cosmic horror, dark fantasy. So I am a cognitive psychologist by training. So that's my hard science. At the same time, I am also using more social speculation in some ways here, because instead of drawing a what was the past like and doing the research, I have to think about what might the future look like. So one of the areas that really is hard science fiction here is that the dandelion networks are built on the modern technologies and structures used for citizen science and crowdsourcing. One of the major things that I was trying to look at is work still needs to get done. And how do people think about that in a world where you are not doing it for payment and survival in the same way that we are in late-stage capitalism, but there are still incentives, there are still things that need to be done whether or not anyone wants to do them. Now, one of the little things I did there was to make this shift from I am an ex, having your one specific job as part of your identity. I say, I'm a cognitive psychologist. But if I were in 2083, I would say I'm an expert in cognitive psychology, and mm -hmm. I'm also an expert in writing, and I'm also an expert in parenting. To make it something that you do that's one among many things that are all valued rather than something that you are that is made special by it being the one thing you get paid for. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that is complicated about the future that you put forth in this book, as there is very likely to be so much that is complicated about our actual future. And I'm curious about what it was like bringing the contradictions together, the ways in which every seemingly good thing in this book, there are downsides to it. It is present with gender and with family and with technology. I mean, the dandelion networks are such a cool idea and also, there were moments where I found myself engrossed in the book and my skin was starting to crawl thinking about network reliance and these moments where characters are like, oh, I can't get on the network. I can't figure this thing out. I'm going to have to cue this so that when other people wake up, they can look into it. That push-pull tension lived in me in a really physical way. And I want to know more about creating the Dandelion Networks and building in these 
complexity. Yeah. One of my areas of interest is the psychology of technology and how we think about it and how we interact with it. I started using the internet when I went into college in the 90s and I loved it. And I love having a big worldwide network that connects everyone. And I can see that it has gone very bad places. And I tried and I tried and I was like, I cannot come up with a positive future in which we still have this internet. I do not see those as being compatible and I hate that. <laughs> so the smaller, more sort of separated dandelion networks were an exploration of what we would have to lose in order to gain something more human scale in our technology. And one of the things I was thinking about as I wrote these technologies is what would it take to have technology that's designed around having a setup that helps people maintain their mental health and to think better rather than being required to shape our psychology around the technologies that are offered to us. Technologies that we know are psychologically bad for us, even while they're also psychologically good for us in some ways. There's just no end to the good news and the bad news and the good news and the bad news. And so I was looking for a different balance. I wanted something that would feel more like a good fit to people's brains and more something that you could customize to the way you're comfortable thinking and the level at which you're comfortable being thoroughly networked and that would give you connections to other people who could help solve problems. But it does have its downsides and it does, you know, it's very much a cyborg setup in which and we have this now, when it goes away, how much of your work can you do when your technology breaks down? It was in some ways quite reassuring, really, to jump ahead to the 2080s and see the ways in which, okay, we're more ready for some things, but also it, it sort of feels inherent to the humanity of it all. Of like, well, there's going to be downsides to everything at some point. Uh -huh. Yeah, and one of my central questions was... Right now, we are having huge crises that our current form of governance does not seem like it's set for. Like Maybe we still have some ability to figure out ways to solve climate change with congresses and parliaments and nation states, but it's not what it was designed for, and it is, you know, struggling to fit. And so here's the thing that was designed to solve this problem, and what happens when it meets a problem that it was not designed for. I mean, speaking of problems that we may or may not be designed for, the energizing question of this book, I love, first of all, that it's laid out so clearly and concisely within the first 15 pages. There is this proposal put forward that then the entirety of the book on an intellectual level is just grappling with. Can societies, period, exist on a planet or must they go into the stars? It is simultaneously a very exciting question and an absolutely fucking terrifying one. And I liked that, again, you didn't shy away from that. I mean, these characters don't waste time. They all immediately jump into contemplating these big existential thoughts without ever coming around to a singular answer. Spoilers, I guess. I'm just curious about your thoughts on the question and your thoughts on the possible answers that you were teasing out in the book. One of the reasons I write books is to argue with myself. 
And one of the reasons I write books is to argue with other people. And there's this assumption <laughs> in a lot of science fiction that going into space is both humanity's destiny and the logical thing that humanity must do to survive. Sometimes it even goes as far as it is easier to survive once mm -hmm. you're in space. You have so many setups of space operas where, you know, people left Earth behind because it became uninhabitable and they went into space. And like, my, my dude, if you can make a spaceship that works, you can probably make Earth habitable. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the easy mode. And, you know, I love the idea of space travel. I love the idea of manned space travel. I particularly love it if there's someone out there to talk to. But it's not quite that simple. And so I wanted to explore that. And a part of what I wanted to do with the aliens was to set up a culture that could reasonably have made that decision. So one of the sort of underlying questions here is, who would build a Dyson Sphere who would not be complete jerks and would still be worth talking to? Because you've got to be a certain sort of species to take apart your solar system to turn it into a Dyson Sphere. And I think in most cases, I would look at that and go, let's stay over here. Year. Yeah. But the idea of having, you know, the equivalent of Earth and Mars both inhabited, they start talking to each other early. They have this very early idea that there are people out there to talk to, and they have the need for a compromise environment so that by the time they start hitting climate change, then it's going to seem much more reasonable to them to find an in between place where they can both live together. It's so interesting, right? The ringers have developed this way of working together, this compromise environment, essentially. And yet they also bring with them their own biological essentialism. You know, this whole thing of like, oh, we will look down on you or not believe that you're an expert of some kind if you don't have a child. And that ignores so many things about human beings that you have to ask yourself, like, what else might they be missing? And that, to me, felt like a really integral cog of this book like what might we be missing about ourselves let alone about each other about our planet about society about space it's such a big question how do we live together i originally wanted to build up the whole idea of symbiosis with both species having non-sapient symbiotic species this is one of the central things about humanity is that we create symbiosis. Like we're symbiotic with dogs, we're symbiotic with cats, we're symbiotic with fire. We will find mutual relationships with whatever, even as we're also like a vector for extinction. But if, if we <laughs> like you, there's going to be 50 million of you and we're going to breed you to not have noses. <laughs> so, uh, and you can still see bits of that in that, you know, the humans have a dog. There are mm -hmm. a couple of people on the spaceship who have little lizardy pets, but I didn't end up doing a ton with that. It just didn't fit in. And then the other thing that you can also see bits of is that I wanted to write uh alien invasion story that was about invasive species and judy worries about that and it gets addressed a little but it didn't end up being a big plot thread so the the invasive kudzu that comes along with the friendly alien story still remains to be written yeah i do like like it was this in some ways 
the first hook for me into this book, the little bit of it that is in here. I mean, that, that that's how humanity realizes that aliens have arrived in the first place. They're like, oh, somebody's dumping something in the Chesapeake. Can, can you take a look at this? And even that idea, I mean, I feel like we as humans are just starting to really wrap our heads around how not to contaminate the other places that we might go. And I guess there's a little bit of like, maybe we don't or can't, won't know until we get there. And I love that you set that up and then also included this feeling of there are more immediately pressing issues. You know, it's like this open chord that rings out in the background. And speaking of the background, there's so much that clearly went into creating like the xenobiology and morphology of these aliens. And I've just I've been thinking from a craft point of view, I guess, sort of once you knew that you wanted to write this diaper punk story, you knew it was going to be a first contact story. When did you realize who the aliens were? Did they come next? At least some parts of them came next. Like They show up in the first few pages, so I needed yeah. to have some idea of what was going on with that. So some parts of them are very much, this is what I needed for the book. So the gender stuff and the very different ways that they do gender and gender essentialism was both related to the themes and also I love doing cultures that have very different sorts of conservatism than we get now. So like I did that with the deep ones who have very strong opinions about social roles, as you'd expect from people who have <laughs> elders 50,000 years old, that are only tangentially related to anything you'd expect people to be yelling at their grandkids for in our culture. And so I wanted to do some of that with the ringers and the sort of gender essentialism that you get when you have a species that has very different life patterns for male and female and another one that has the setup that yes, some species on earth have where the difference in hormones between different members of the species affects who is playing what reproductive role at any given moment and then one of those reproductive roles gets a lot of privilege and respect. And also, you know, I, I needed two of them. I needed them to have reasons to be wanting to build out their Dyson Spear. And I needed reasons for them to have this obsession with interspecies cooperation. You mentioned I did the Lovecraft stuff earlier. And Lovecraft has many, 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 many problems. One of the things that he's really good at is non-humanoid non-human aliens mm -hmm. and so i felt like there was a bit of a bar there that i needed to clear because i got to borrow his aliens last time and i needed to make up my own and if they can be played by humans with prosthetic foreheads then that's going to be kind of a drop after the migo <laughs> so i also really like playing with the question of what if you are out there meeting really awesome aliens and they fall right into the middle of your phobias? It was actually my first published short story in Analog many years ago now was about someone who had a snake phobia getting involved with first contact with aliens who look kind of like snakes. 
So I've got to talk to you about the ending of this book, by which I mean literally the last paragraph. I I was about to say I underlined it. I do not write in my books, but with a poster, uh, but with a post-it note, I underlined it several times. There was something so powerful and hopeful and also messy about the ending. The feeling of the story doesn't end here and it is up to you, the reader, to take these thoughts however you will. And I think that that happens for a lot of writers in general. It's sort of like, okay, the book's out of my hands. Good luck. Have fun. But with this in particular, I had this feeling of seeing you, the author, sort of sitting there at the end of the book being like, well, what do you think? to the reader. I was just so tickled by that. And I want to, you know, the book has been out for a bit over a year now when we're having this conversation. And I want to know how that has been, how it has landed for you, how it has landed for audiences, how people have talked to you, debated with you about this sort of, what do you think happens next ending? It has definitely been like, clearly it has gotten people to think and it has gotten people to argue and that's a lot of fun it has gotten me invitations to a lot of conversations uh, about climate work and democracy work that i am very happy to be part of and very interested to see how it's gotten attention in those circles uh in some way you know that's that's the sort of ending that I know how to do. Fundamentally, mm. my idea of an ending is someone makes an interesting decision that opens up more possibilities. Also, it was an ending that went through a lot of changes. So the entire epilogue exists because my editor was like, I feel like we need a little bit more. So originally it didn't have that. And then, no, I need to see about this, this, and this. And I thought, oh, well, there's a bunch of things that I wanted to write that I didn't feel like I had room for. So I'm going to put those in here and that ended up working out very well. Carl Angelaird is always great at figuring out how to sharpen the points that I'm making and where to add to them. And so that that was one of his contributions of which there were many for you know ma making everything come to a satisfying place of messy questions. Alexis Pauline Gums is a queer, black troublemaker and black feminist love evangelist and an aspirational cousin to all sentient beings. I love that line of Alexis's bio. She is so many things. Alexis breaks forms and structures and genres. She is a poet. She is an academic. She is an essayist. The two stories that we visited with earlier, ask us to look at the natural world differently. Maybe they don't ask us. Maybe they demand that we do. Alexis Pauline Gums's work does something similar. I'm an enormous fan of her poetry, but she has this book called Undrowned that is out from AK Press. The subtitle is Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. It is a vivid book-length meditation for humanity on how we might consider engaging differently with the world around us. Alexis's work, if you have not encountered it before, is the kind of thing that will change how you see the world around you forever after. You will not be unchanged by encountering her work. 
She's one of those people who I look to when I think about how to ethically engage with the climate crisis, with what it means to be human, what it means to be an animal. I reached out to her when I was thinking about this episode coming together as a nature episode. We had an absolutely marvelous conversation that has remained with me for the days and weeks since, deep in my heart. And it all started with this question about the consistent need to learn or relearn or unlearn how to move about in the world. Oh, there's so much unlearning and relearning. I think at its root, what I am unlearning is an idea of separation, an idea that the natural world exists and I exist separately. And I can just reflect upon the natural world, sometimes as a metaphor for what I'm feeling. And that's a cop-out. At the end of the day, I am a part of the natural world, right? It's not a metaphor. What I'm feeling is relevant to nature because I am nature. And this separation, I mean, it's not like we invented it as a convenient cop-out for our impact on climate change, right? This has a very old history Sylvia Winter charts out a whole intellectual history of colonialism. Like, how could it be that people would imagine that there was something called human separate from nature? And that's a great question because we completely are intertwined with and interdependent with the entire rest of the natural world, right? So I started to think about the fact, well, okay, so as a poet, am I complicit in regenerating this idea of separation by acting as if these images of nature are just convenient metaphors that could be useful in an idea that still says that I'm an individual and I have this subjectivity and there could be parts of me, even my interior life, that are separate from the rest of the growing, changing, screaming, struggling, overheating in, in, in case of what's going on right now, natural world. There's this transformative impulse. It's a queer thing to be a Black feminist poet writing about marine mammals, for example. But it also comes out of the fact that my teachers in that tradition, I think about my writing teacher, Zelda Lockhart, has always encouraged me to listen to the work and to say, it's not for me to say, well, it's this. It needs to be this. It needs to be a novel. It needs to be a poem. And then I'm just forcing it to be something within that form. I think that the whole reason that I'm engaged in creative work or thinking about things over and over again or any of this practice at all is because I am interested in the potential that I will be transformed beyond who I know myself to be. And so I have to surrender that. I have to let go of I am only a poet and poet means this and this thing that I'm writing, it's only a poem and therefore it must be like this. I have to let that go because if everything goes well, I will be unrecognizable to myself on the other side of this process, you know? But it does feel scary sometimes. I think that there's a security that forms provide and even that identities offer, right? It's kind of like a place where enough things can be knowable that we can proceed to make something happen. But when what's happening is problematic and needs to stop happening, right? <laughs> then we, we have to be like, well, maybe I shouldn't know. I should know some less things. And maybe the things that I think I know are on like terrible and false pretenses, or they will continue to produce something that's unlivable. 
it does feel like a risk. It does require a lot of vulnerability and that vulnerability is scary. How do I make space for what I've never imagined, what I haven't experienced before, what it might feel like, how an old response might come to meet a new possibility and the contradictions that might be there. I think being a perpetual student, you know, being a marine mammal apprentice, but also kind of a student in general <laughs> to all of life is necessary. The humility of that is necessary. There is something general. Like I do hope that the feeling of reading one of the vignettes in Undrowned and having that feeling of like, oh, wow, that curiosity that you talked about, which is what I was experiencing every day when I was learning about marine mammals, I was like, what? They can slow their heart rate down? <laughs> you know, like, that's phenomenal. I never would have imagined that we could just, like, I didn't know that. And then I got to have this feeling, and it's not this feeling that's like, well, now I want to colonize it, and this is what I know, and now that I know that, I can use that to keep myself safe from the not knowing. It's the opposite thing. We didn't know that. And so what else could be possible? And there's a huge need for that. That's the vulnerability I'm talking about, that it's like, oh, I'm never going to know. There's also an ethics inside of that, right, that says that, you know, I honor your existence, you, Drew, but all the, all the yous, you know, of all species that could possibly exist, because no matter if I listen to every single podcast you've made, no matter how much I learn about you, the curiosity can remain because there's still something possible that I would be like, wow, and um, and that that is the reason that it's important to me that you exist and that you get to be yourself. It's not because you can develop a wonderful set of skills that are useful to me. I mean, you have, and your skills at podcasting are useful to me in this moment. But that's not actually the most fun part of the fact that you're alive, right? It's, it's the fact that there's things I can learn about you, and then there's always going to be this majority of unknowable possibility. And I think that that's just a different relationship to life. And so if we related to water in that way, if we related to the grass, the forests, all of the species, but really just all of everything in that way, there's a liberation there. It is easy to feel overwhelmed by all of this, but... I don't know. I find, boy, there's that word again, hope. I do find hope, though, when I encounter ideas like this, people like this, thoughts like this, that the stories we tell help us think differently about the world and maybe, just maybe, help us see a way towards a future where we can all survive. And by all, I mean everything, not just everybody. Maybe I'm naive, I don't know, but I'm making a podcast about genre fiction and you're listening to it, so I feel like at the very least, we are in this boat together, wouldn't you say? This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lencioni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production, courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the teams at Tor and at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>